0: Hello, welcome to this edition of the Hartford Literary Podcast. I'm Emma Smith. I'm the fellow librarian, and I teach English. And therefore, it's a particular pleasure to welcome today's guest, who who read English uh, with us at Hartford, Alex Preston, who's a, a, a novelist, critic, uh, nature writer, all round. Man of Letters. Um, I'm desperate to ask him about his forthcoming book called Winchelsea, which is a, a historical novel. But I'm going to uh, uh, hold my hold my excitement about that and just ask some some introduction. So, Alex, welcome to the podcast.
1: Lovely to be here, Emma, and uh, and great to see you.
0: It's really really good to have you. Um, let's just just tell us a bit about sort of you and uh, writing and how that fits with Hartford. Were you were you a writer? Uh, back then. Um was that what you were always heading for? Uh,
1: I think it I think it was. I mean it, it's been a slightly haphazard path, but I think it's always been there. And there was um there was a poet who was teaching at Hartford when I when I was there, Jamie McKendrick, um brilliant, brilliant poet, who started a series of creative writing evenings. Um we we went to the basement of a of a pub up in Jericho and read uh, certainly in my case very very bad poetry to to one another Um, but it was this sort of glimpse into the possibility of a writing life that I got at Hartford and then of course uh, you know my tutors uh, yourself and and particularly Tom Paulin you know really um, really nurtured that side of me and and talked to me in in really interesting ways about it and i you know i think so much about being a writer is about confidence and is about you know the the old clichés of finding your voice and and that definitely happened to me when i was at hartford
0: your first novel um which rightly i mean sort of erupted onto the scene won loads of prizes was a sort of an extraordinary debut at this bleeding city so that that drew on experience you had in the financial sector which so did you do that straight after after college
1: yeah i mean you know i think it's a terrible idea to let 21 year olds make decisions about their lives and um uh i you know I feel like <clears throat> sort of my time. I managed to get both the the best things about Oxford and the worst things about it um, all at, all at once. And and I definitely sort of fell in with slightly the wrong crowd and and had my head turned by lots of sort of parties in in wonderful houses and uh, uh, and you know racy trips to London. And so when I left Oxford, it was right. It was this sort of crazy time. It was the dot com boom, and I set up an internet company. I remember uh, several times having conversations with you and Tom about whether this was necessarily the best thing for me to be doing with my life. But of course you, you let me make those decisions. And I think that was, uh, I think, you know, maybe it is good to make those sorts of mistakes, but it was a long mistake for me. And I worked in the city after leaving Hartford for seven and a half years. Um, and, and really it wasn't the right place for me. And, uh, And I'd always sort of thought I'd write a book about it um, because there were just so many extraordinary characters and and events. And finally, I did. And, And and as you say, it did it did very well. It came out as the financial crash hit, which I think was also quite helpful um but you know uh, it, it's interesting one has a weird relationship with the books that, that 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 one writes and and i still look back on that and and i'm proud of it even if recognizing um that that you know it is basically autobiography
0: it it's a um it, it's a really memorable book um the scene the sort of awful um sort of ghastly kind of clammy climax it comes to when the the central character who's got sort of no sense of what's important leaves leaves the child in the in the overheated car and sort of completely forgets forgets about them I mean that's a sort of uh it, it whirls to a kind of nightmare about about that world and and its values um which, if it is autobiographical, I see that um, it makes me feel really pleased that you, you got out. Um, well done. Yes, I
1: never left a child in a car. I would like to. No, point I, no, out. no. Like point out. But it seemed to me emblem- emblematic. Yeah, yeah.
0: Of course, yeah. It it becomes a sort of. I mean, it, it's not as heavy-handed as as the word suggests, but it's a, it's a kind of yeah allegory or or emblem. Yeah, c- completely. So what what how did you make the step away from away from that world? In t- uh, and towards the literary, back towards the literary sphere?
1: I mean, you know, the, they had been two parallel strands in my life. I don't think I ever, you know, there was never a time when I wasn't writing. Um, but obviously it was, uh, you know, it was hard to fit in around a full-time job in a in a very highly pressured world. And so I wrote This Bleeding City, you know, on planes, on the tube in the morning uh I would sit and uh sit by my my wife uh girlfriend at the time I think um uh as she watched telly in the evening and I would have headphones in and be writing at the same time so it was you know it was really a matter of just finding the the sort of margins of the day in which to write and and I recognized that you know it was something I loved doing and that I wanted to do it more now I I'd, I'd, I'd I wish I could say that you know I got news that my book would be published by Faber and immediately went in and quit my job but it was it was slightly less dramatic than that it did take uh you know the the success of the book and the recognition that I could make something approaching a living from writing um before I before I chucked in the the day job um and you know it, it was obviously the best decision I ever made it was um it was a struggle at first um my second book I'm not hugely proud of and I don't think it quite did what I wanted it to do um but you know uh, the third did all right and the fourth did all right and the fifth I'm very very happy with so um you know it feels like this is <laughs> this is now the path I'm on
0: I have thought such a lot about your your third novel. Uh I think I perhaps wrote to you uh if and if I didn't I meant to.
1: No you did. You did. I remember. It. I did I
0: was thinking about it a lot during the strange kind of lockdown period. Just tell us a bit about about that about that novel.
1: Yeah, so uh, In Love and War um is set in Florence in um in the years of the Second World War. Um and it's about a, a young man whose father is high up in the British Union of Fascists in the UK and is sent out to Florence to be a kind of liaison with Mussolini. Florence was one of the leading fascist cities um during uh during the war. Um there was a, a really evil figure running the uh, the the secret police there called Carita. Um it's a it, I went to Florence and I just found these stories. I think I actually saw you on the on the plane <laughs> on the way back randomly, yeah. <laughs> which is lovely um uh and and that was the you know i think i i mean I basically lived there on an on off basis for for three years uh researching this book and just kept finding more and more extraordinary stories but But what you wrote to me about was the uh the kind of quarantine that um many had to go into uh in the city to uh, escape the attentions of the secret police. And there's a a long um sort of uh almost like an interlude where the hero and, and his and his lover uh Arda go up to a villa just outside of the city um and have this kind of weirdly blissful time even though they know that everything is horror around them. Um, and, you know, it it did it that I mean, that was sort of what my experience of, of lockdown was like. And in terms of, you know, having really tragic things going on around, but also recognizing that there was a kind of purity of the life at the time. And so, yeah, it did. It, it was something that I had all also thought of. But I think you put it very nicely.
0: Uh, I really recommend the book. It's that that, that interlude, as is, as is, is you put it, I suppose in part because it resonates um, so beautifully with um, a trope from, I don't know, Le Grand Monde or something, or all, all, all the way through this this uh, sort of idealized, um, rather simple, I mean, simple and and also grand kind of escape. Uh, it's a really wonderful.
1: Well, book. it was it. It was sort of modelled on the on. I mean, not, uh, this sounds a bit pretentious, but it was like it was modelled on the Decameron Yeah. Um, and this idea of of the city under plague, um, and you know, uh, I mean, it is not a new uh, idea to 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 link the kind of disease and and fascism, um, but this idea that it would be possible to retreat into a world of 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 books and and sort of. Um, rarefied thought and <laughs> mixed with a kind of uh, sort of bubbling up of sexuality um and that's and that's what i wanted to so i wanted I, I read a lot of of the decameron or read it a lot during that period and um and actually returned to it for obvious reasons um last year um it's such a an, a, an amazing book
0: yeah uh and and a, one of the texts that has so Sort of come into prominence in 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 diff, you know in different ways over the over the last year or so. I wanted to ask you then about that all that research, um, partly because I want to get to to, to Winchelsea. Um, uh, that's an extraordinary sort of investment of of research research time. Uh, is that always? Going to be—is that always your model? What's the research you've done? Maybe, maybe a different question is: What's the research you've done for for, for Winchelsea? So that's set in the 18th century. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I, I think it's very—it's or, or it's kind of fascinating to think about one's own process because you you don't think of yourself as having a way of doing things because each book feels so different. Um, and it seems to me that the research needs to flow out of the life. So um you know i i had spent a lot of my childhood in italy and had loved italy and had sort of lost touch with italy and ha- had actually f- sort of forgotten my italian and 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 in love and war was a way of reconnecting with that italian past and i had to relearn my italian because some of the people I wanted to interview didn't speak English and and I didn't want to pay for a, for a translator. Um, and so, you know, definitely that kind of immersive uh and and real, you know, trying to get to grips with primary sources and all of that sort of stuff. That that was really important for me. Winchelsea was a slightly different thing in that, so in the beginning of 2016, well, let me take it back a step further. In 2015, we did a huge road trip across the states and um uh just staying in little sort of uh, you know villages and country towns and spending all the summer outside it was it was 9 weeks long and it was just bliss um and we drove from Miami to New York and uh and you know it was just heaven and then we came back in the in the September to London and it just felt like everything was kind of grey and closed in around us. And and so we almost sort of without thinking about it, decided to move out of London. And uh, we moved to the Kent Sussex border, um, just north of Rye and Winchelsea. Um, and so, um, I mean, 2000, so this was the beginning of 2016, we moved and and, you know, Brexit happened and it was all slightly horrifying because we suddenly recognised that we had left a place where, we knew both place and people very well and moved to a place where we knew neither. Um and so Winchelsea was my way of of really immersing myself in this place and its history. Uh and there was a there was a road that piqued my interest just down the road from me, and it's called Dumb Woman's Lane. Um and I uh I found myself driving up and down it quite a lot, and I wanted to know, well, why it's why is it called that? Um, and it turned out that it was a lady who had lived on the lane who had peached on the Hawkehurst gang, so had, uh, had told the authorities about their, their doings. Now, the Hawkehurst gang was a smuggler gang that basically ruled the whole of Sussex, Kent and Hampshire in the, in the 18th century. And the reason it was called Dumb Woman's Lane was because they'd cut out her tongue and i mean it was a bit like some of the stories i found in florence that it was something where i was like okay this is a story um and so i started reading about the Hawkehurst gang i started visiting archives i spent a lot of time speaking with local historical societies um and spent a lot of time in winchelsea itself which uh, i don't know if you've been there is a a really kind of atmospheric and, and fascinating town with a with an extraordinary history um and uh and you know it, it, you with the research you want to get to that stage where the book sort of starts writing itself and I and I definitely got there I mean it's taken me sort of I guess three and a half four years but it was um it it was such a rich source of stories and 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 it, it ends up being what you leave out rather than what you put in
0: I'm uh, I'm really really looking forward to it one thing I noticed when I was um uh, you know, finding out about when it was coming, and this is you've changed publishers, and I wondered if you, as somebody very uh, connected with the literary world, could just sort of explain to us how how that works, or what what this what the significance of that is.
1: Yeah, it was it was an interesting thing. So you tend to sign uh, deals for you know several books at a time, and so I had a multi book deal with Faber initially and loved being published by Faber um they published my grandfather in the 1970s and there was a nice sort of connection there um but you know it has been a it's been a sort of interesting time for publishing and and things have changed a great deal and 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 my editor at Faber Walter Donahue, um is uh you know he's a absolutely wonderful man and i love him with all my heart but he is not a young man and he is sort of entering the i guess the foothills of retirement um and so my deal with faber had ended and i'd also changed literary agent um and that was sort of again it was a sense of i i felt like um i felt like i just wanted something new with this Book and that I wanted it to find perhaps audiences that the previous books hadn't, I felt like it would be perhaps beneficial to me as a writer to have fresh eyes on my work. Um, and so my agent, uh, Carolina Sutton at Curtis Brown, uh, sent out the book, *Winchelsea* to just a, a handful of publishers and, um, And, you know, I mean, I think to describe it as a bidding war would be um, would be overstating it. But there was, um, you know, there was significant interest from a few parties and actually Canongate ended up um, making the the, the best offer. But also uh, I had really admired uh, how they'd published other writers. um, And particularly um, I had had quite a bit to do uh with Mazemengiste um whose book The Shadow King uh I sort of picked up early and admired greatly um a uh, wonderful book about uh the the war in Abyssinia Ethiopia um uh and and I just loved it and and it is actually her editor Joe Dingley who I have ended up working with and you know I mean I there, I have always admired those writers who stay with the you know the same agent and the same editor and the same publisher or all, all the way through their careers. Um, I had already left Faber for my non-fiction book as Kingfisher's Catch Fire um, which was published by Little Brown um, really because uh, I, I had a very particular vision with what I wanted that book to look like uh, and Faber did not share that vision um, and Little Brown absolutely did what I wanted that book to do. So um, you know, I, I sort of, I feel I miss Faber, but also Canongate are a, a really, really wonderful publisher and I'm very, very happy with with what they've done so far and I'm absolutely thrilled with the cover they've put together for for Winchelsea, which I think is just absolutely fantastic.
0: And it will be out when?
1: February, February next year.
0: February, wonderful. Okay, that's absolutely great. Um, I'm so pleased you mentioned... Um uh the the nonfiction book uh which is absolutely a beautiful object it's re- interesting to hear the, the the backstory to that beautifully beautifully illustrated an absolutely wonderful um book which I have given to all kinds of uh all kinds of people. Um what was the what was that also a kind of move from London sort of book? Was that part of that recalibration?
1: yeah i mean it's really interesting it was it was begun before the move, but it was clearly part of the um it was part of that uh that whole process and you know it's that that idea uh, you know i mentioned it with in the war I, I i had been a a nerdy bird watcher as a kid and um and birds had always been really important to me and i recognized that even though i no longer went and sort of stood on uh the the marshes at Pagham or, or or um you know took myself off on on twitching trips that i looked for birds in in the books i was reading and 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 was drawn to books that were good on birds um and so i thought it might be interesting to put together a book that tried to be both anthology and memoir about birds and so it sort of tells the story of my life but through birds and books, um, and birds in books, um, and it's you know, uh, for me, it's it's so much about Neil Gower's extraordinary illustrations. Neil had done the maps and uh, and illustrations, the little um, sort of beginning of chapter um, motifs in 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 Love and War, and we became and and are still great friends. Um, and and so the collaboration with him on on Kingfishers was just such a thing of 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 joy and um uh, and you know uh, yeah I I was really interested in the idea of creating a book that was just a a, a beautiful object and about beautiful things and I, and I think we did that.
0: You absolutely, uh, you absolutely did do that. Um, it's a, it's a great book, uh, and it was such a revelation uh, to me. It's very interesting hearing you talk about your uh, Oxford life and these other things that were sort of in abeyance or slightly suppressed during that period. But uh, we must go to Otmore or something one time when you're, when you're in,
1: uh, in and around Oxford. That would be lovely. I do you know what? And, and this is the thing. I mean my um my sort of regrets of the things i didn't do while i was at oxford i I feel like probably heaven is the ability to relive oxford with the benefit of hindsight um because i you know i think it's but i think it's a good thing not to take you know because that's surely the classic experience of oxford is uh is is the experience of not having really made the most of it and yet still to have benefited so much from all the opportunities that one did probably accidentally <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. What what is this making the most of it anyway as you say it, it would be about a sort of weird temporal palimpsest where you had the wisdom of age and and the uh the, the energy and the um, ability to go on not much sleep of youth That that's kind yeah, of
1: yeah I mean it was interesting so I didn't I, I did my PhD at UCL um, and uh, I did, I was sort of, I mean, it was a slightly ghostly experience because I would go and work in, in the library there every day and I was surrounded by undergraduates and I sort of wanted to say to them, you know, just breathe it all in, enjoy every moment, don't don't get don't get distracted, go to all your, le- you know, all of the things that I wished that I'd done uh, when I was there. But I do, I have a really strong memory of, you know, what must have been certainly my final week at Oxford, uh, of walking down whatever that street was called that sort of goes around the back of Queens, um, that goes under the Bridge of sighs Yeah, Queens, Queens, Queens Lane, New College Lane. Yeah, um, and that sense of recognising what an extraordinary three years i'd had and how unbelievably lucky i'd been and how much i had changed as a person and, and not necessarily all in good ways but also that thing of living in ideas for three years which i think university at its best should be about i i had really achieved that and it was you know i mean it it is still the defining experience of my life, the time I spent there.
0: Yeah, that's that's really, really wonderful. Really wonderful to hear. And uh, I think you you know, you 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 did it you did it the way you did it brilliantly and well, and you did it the way that you were going to do it authentically at, at that time. I think that's all anybody can ask. And as you say, looking back and saying, thinking, you know, why don't I do it as I would now do it as a grown up person is, is as as we're saying, kind of to miss to miss the point a bit. One of the things I admire about you, Alex, is how generous you are to other writers, how much you are uh, a positive force, a, um, a generous and constructive force in the sort of wider world of, of letters through reviewing and through uh, literary festivals. You're a patron of the Oxford Literary Festival, Through even through things like um, the writer's cricket team that you're, <laughs> um, that, that, that you're in. Is that how we should understand the literary world uh, is is your version of it, um, which is, you know, about kindness and delight in other people's success and a sort of rising tide and all that kind of thing. Is that is that what the literary world is like? Or do you feel as if you're sometimes a, an exception?
1: It's really interesting. I got I got um, skewered in uh, in private eye the other day um, for saying for being too nice about about books. Um,
0: I would have there are some more, um, you know, sort of pointed problems in our world for satirical skewering right now than than, than you're reviewing, but anyway, let's it's it's mark of you've made it, you've made it now.
1: No, but you know, but the um, what was what they don't didn't recognize, and it, it so I have a very, very good relationship with my editor at the Observer, Ursula Kenny, who is just a wonderful, wonderful woman, um, and. We've worked together now for um, for ten years, um, and from from very early on, we came to an agreement that I would review books that I wanted to review and that I would put forward to her, and that if I read a book, you know, and particularly a debut. I mean, I remember this bleeding city did not get universally good reviews, and uh, uh, and you know. I mean, it was not a time at which a recently former banker um, or, you know, at the time when it came out, I was still working in the city. It was definitely not a time that you you, you were guaranteed a good press. Um, but I, I just feel like there is enough kind of nastiness in the world. Um, and so if I read a book and I don't like it, I just say to Ursula, would you mind giving it to somebody else or would you mind if we didn't review this one? And so it means that I end up reading a lot more than I review, but that's fine because I read a lot and I read reasonably swiftly um, and I feel like what I what I want to do is to get behind the books that I love and uh, I love a lot that I read and I you know there's that John Updike had uh, kind of rules for reviewing. And the one that has stuck with me is um, establish uh, the spell that the writer is trying to cast and do your best to submit yourself to it. And I think it's a very simple uh, uh, idea. And it's something that I try to do with every book that I pick up. Uh, I don't try and read it for what I want to get from it. I try to work out what's what it's trying to do and how successful it is at at doing that, and so you know, I definitely have a uh, a good review to hatchet job ratio that is more skewed in one direction than most. I I the people I take down are successful writers if I think they've done a bad job, um, and I I also feel you know I'm incredibly lucky that I have built a career in writing that enables me to. Uh, you know, to be spending all of my time in one way or another, immersed in books and the literary world. And if I can help others up along that path, and through, you know, certainly my early years in, in writing were tricky. And I had some disappointments. And I had some wonderful, wonderful friends who helped me along. Um, And some writers who were generous to me in ways that they absolutely didn't need to be um and if I can pay some of that back uh then then of course I will
0: and what's your take on how the the literary world looks uh right now I mean we hear a lot of sort of rather conflicting ideas I think about how many books people are reading or who gets published or whether anybody you know sells any books or Do do you think that literary fiction is in is in good heart at the moment
1: uh, you know, it is, uh, I think, in better heart than it was when I started out in in, in writing. You know, the, the, the sort of end of the noughties and, and early 2010s were a really tricky time uh, for the literary world. I think things are better. Uh, I think the literary world is involved, uh, as the broader world is, in asking some, some serious questions about, um, you know, Gatekeepers and and uh, and about whether we are publishing enough books with sufficiently diverse voices. I think that is getting better. I think you know there are all sorts of problematic moments, but I feel like the general trend is is in the right direction um, as far as that goes. Um, you know, I'm delighted by the success of of people like. Sally Rooney. I think that, you know, I actually didn't love the latest as much as I enjoy. I I really liked the first one, Conversations with Friends. But, um, you know, the fact that people are buying the books of somebody who is doing interesting things with the form in the numbers that they are. I think it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful sign.
0: Yeah, fantastic. There's pictures of
1: people, you know, queuing up. Uh, yeah, the- like they queued up for Harry Potter or whatever. I mean, it's just absolutely thrilling. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I yeah, I, I mean, I'm sort of a naturally optimistic person and uh, it's very hard not to map one's own uh, sort of um, proclivities onto the broader world. And um, But I, you know, I look at, my own kids and i look at their friends and i think about the con you know so i've got a, a 13 year old and an 11 year old and uh i i love recommending books to them and their friends and seeing how they get passed around between and particularly now my son's reading kind of grown-up books and uh and you know we were on holiday this summer and uh and he and his um his friend little 13-year-old friend who we were on holiday with were both reading The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And I was like, what? I totally remember <laughs> that moment of reading it myself and just being completely dragged into that world. And it's, you know, I, there is still no, no experience like the complete colonization of the mind that comes with reading a really really good book and I and I have an oculus quest and have and have played immersive games on it and it isn't it isn't anything like the 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 the, just the transformative impact that reading something amazing can have on you
0: yeah the secret history is absolutely um you know full of that that updike spell that you mentioned uh before isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely um well we could keep actually there's one thing i want to ask you about before right before i come back to hartford which is the bees how are the bees doing oh
1: uh, i mean 2020 was uh, you know the bees were not the greatest tragedy of 2020 yeah. but the bees were a victim of 2020 um uh, uh, and actually, weirdly, I guess it was to do with lockdown that my bees had such a bad 2020. I, we we had been, we had a kind of swamp in the garden um, that suddenly being at home all the time uh, turned it from something that was merely unsightly and kind of vaguely unhealthy looking, Um, you know, the breeding ground for mosquitoes, et cetera, into something that we actively um, needed to deal with. Um, The bees were kept near the swamp. And in order to have the swamp drained, I had to move the bees. Now you can move, so these are, I had three hives of of bees. You can either move bees three feet or three miles, um, otherwise they can't reorient themselves. so I took them to a friend's house while we had the swamp dredged and drained. Um, and, I mean, it was hellish. I got them in the car. Uh, you know, I took a corner too quickly. One of the supers, the top hive, came off and the bees were all over the car. And it was just, I mean, it was completely hellish. Uh, my suit wasn't done up properly. They got down at I'm slightly allergic to bee stings. And so um, uh was driving along with bees crawling over my face um into the corners of my eyes i mean it was just it was awful um anyway i got them finally back in place um uh in sort of late september but i think it was just too late and Bees need to be at a kind of critical mass to make it through the winter. It's you know a a um, they they needed to have uh, the ability to to keep themselves warm and they just didn't. So uh, I started again in um, uh, in late May with just one new hive, and they are thriving and they are doing wonderfully. Um, I have deliberately not taken any honey from them this year. Uh, I just want them to get established. Um, I want them to uh, to sort of feel comfortable and then I will start taking honey next year. Um, they are next to the chickens who are a new arrival as well. I mean, we are slowly becoming uh, self-sufficient. You know, it's a very cliched lockdown experience, but um, the chickens are wonderful as well. So um, yeah, it's, um, uh, and the bees are, uh, like they're just a lovely, lovely thing to have around. They're a source of joy.
0: I shall come to you, I think, for for some um, bee uh, bee instruction because they're definitely. Are, are definitely you starting? Come, yeah, well, I'm really keen to. I'm re- I don't have any, but I'm really keen to do that. So, I'm. I, this is a conversation for for another day, but it's making me think a Hartford beekeepers um, network would probably be. Uh, oh
1: well, I would be delighted to come and give you a a lesson. I mean, again, as as my friends down here did for me, my first few years of beekeeping, I had bee mentors all around. And they, it was, you know, because it is, it's it's all about um, the, the sort of, the, the, I tried to do beekeeping initially as I tried to do everything through books and just read and read and read. And actually uh, I realized that the books are, are not sufficient alone.
0: Oh, I'm not letting us as, as end on that note, though. That we'll no, no, absolutely. So, so um, w- one of the things, that, as you know, Alex, that's prompted us to um, get in touch with and celebrate Hartford writing in all kinds of genres is our plans uh, to develop the library. And we've got these uh, exciting plans, which include um, uh, uh, an underground uh, reading room with a big. Uh, roof light but also a um uh, a kind of terrace which looks out over Radcliffe Square and there's some kind of wonderful uh, uh aspects to this um but but I'm asking all our all our guests about them and Hartford Library uh whether it was or was not um a, a kind of place in their geography of Hartford so how was the library f- for you as a, a bookish English student?
1: Um, I mean, it will maybe not surprise you because uh, i I think you remember my student life that it sort of, the library book ended my time at Oxford in that I took my studies very seriously when I first turned up and then did almost nothing uh, for certainly the end of my first year and the beginning and the whole of my second year. And then it was really in the third year that that i basically lived in that library and we are still as a group and i'm talking about my year in hartford and largely the the english students from that year um just incredibly incredibly close um you know two of my children's godparents are members of the english uh um uh cohort from from that year um, and all of us meet up regularly and, um, and, you know, it was, I guess what it's supposed to be, but I feel maybe slightly more than, than is usual in that we are, we have remained such a tight knit, uh, group and see each other so regularly, even, you know, we've had some people go abroad and some people, you know, who've got very different shaped lives, but we remain incredibly close and the library was where we hung out. And my memories of being there were how usefully it totally destroyed one's sense of time um, so that you really had no idea uh, whether it was day or night outside when you were cocooned in the downstairs rooms. Um, And... I remember sitting next to uh, my great pal Hermione Eyre, a great novelist now as well. Um, And she used to bring in a bag of silver spoon sugar um, and would sit and work and slowly eat her way through the bag of sugar uh, as a way of uh, kind of energizing her mind uh i had uh, an oxygen canister like something out of blue velvet um and would inhale from it uh believing that this was somehow i think i it, i had this sense that it would sort of clarify my thinking um we were a weird bunch <laughs> um and yeah it was, uh, you know, I only think of that time incredibly fondly, and the we would agree that we would all go out to, to you know, get a drink or, or you know, even just take a walk around uh, around the Rad- Radcliffe Camera together every so often, and it was, it was, it was our trenches. We were, we were in there, and it was it was brilliant because there was a definite sense of sort of spurring each other on and and competition, but it was also collaboration. Um, And I went back um, into the library when I was up there, I guess, was it a Gordie? I can't remember, but I was up there not that long ago and just the smell of the place was, I mean, it was just a total rush of nostalgia and of, of happy, happy memories. And of the sense of of a mind kind of shaping itself and and just one final thing you know I think like everyone at the start, I felt a, a degree of um, you know imposter syndrome and of of um, of maybe not quite being in the right place um, and and certainly not being bright enough to be there and I remember. I think it was my first trip into the library and I sort of was sitting there, I think, with I just sort of picked a book randomly off a shelf and I, I remember there were two girls in the year above. Uh I think Sophie Everest and Helen something. Helen
0: Fulder. Yeah. Helen Fulder. Are you listening, Helen?
1: Or Sophie? And they came and they just and they talked to me and they sort of showed me around the library and it was just this and I was and they were so lovely and I did feel um yeah I felt like oh okay maybe this is all going to be all right so uh it was it was the place in which slowly I began to feel that maybe I could I could do okay there
0: Alex that's lovely it's been so really wonderful really really wonderful talking to you thank you so much for being on our literary podcast and in the next episode which is in fact the final episode of this series uh, i'll be actually picking up what alex was saying about debut novelists and talking to shana's asan so do uh, tune in uh, for that one thanks so much to alex preston and to hannah baronzi who produces the podcast for the development office